1: Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullenane. University presidents of the Gilded Age wielded enormous power. And I know people of today will probably think that the same is true of our time, that there's this sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly of university presidents. You can think of Leon Botstein, Mordecai Johnson, Larry Summers, Bob Jones, Gordon Gee. And I'll let you put them into their respective boxes. But back in the Gilded Age, the presidents of universities saw the governance of their institution as being as significant to that of a state governor governing the state or a senator. Woodrow Wilson of Princeton would go on to become president of the United States. And Nicholas Murray Butler of Columbia would run for vice president and president, losing both times. Jacob Gould Sherman of Cornell, was an important diplomatic ambassador, Charles Eliot of Harvard, David Starr Jordan of Stanford, G. Stanley Hall of Clark University, all of them had side hustles as public intellectuals and social commentators. And among this class of Gilded Age presidents of universities is the rather obscure Daniel Coit Gilman of Johns Hopkins University. Gilman had a really interesting career. He helped found the Sheffield Scientific School at Yale University and then served as the second president of the University of California, Berkeley, and then, as I mentioned, the first president of Johns Hopkins University. He also became the first president of the Carnegie Institution. So that's a pretty impressive CV, but there is so much more to discuss here, including, I think, the man's incredible facial hair. He's got these mutton chop whiskers that stretch the length of his face and neck, a little bit like Chester A. Arthur's. Today, I am speaking with one of the veterans of higher education leadership who knows more about Gilman than anyone else because he's just written a biography on the man. It's the president of Coastal Carolina University, Michael T. Benson, and the book is called Daniel Coit Gilman and the Birth of the American Research University. No better person to write this book than Mike Benson because he has worked in university administration for decades as president of Eastern Kentucky University, Southern Utah University, and Snow College in addition, of course, to his latest position. And he has studied at Brigham Young University, Oxford University in the UK. He's played college basketball at both. He's a historian by training and no doubt that has helped him write the biography, but probably, I think, I'm just speculating here, made him a better leader in higher education, which is something I would say, of course, but no doubt also true. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much, Michael. Great to be with you. So this is a, a university president writing about another university president. And I, I can't wait to get into this, this story because it's it's a fantastic one uh, about Daniel Coit Gilman. But I'm going to take a detour because that's what you did in your book at the outset with the introduction. You take a detour. Gilman is, of course, the, uh, the the subject of the book. He's the president of Johns Hopkins University. But as the name of the university suggests, there's another person who made this an important institution. Tell us who Johns Hopkins is.
2: So very interesting, and I'm glad you start with that because, uh, like many institutions right now, um, there's a there's a process going on at, at Hopkins, and his first name Johns was the maternal his maternal great grandmother's main name. So sometimes sometimes people leave off that S, and uh, it's important to, to remember that. I'm glad you got it right, Mike. So um, the uh, Hopkins right now is going through what they're calling hard histories and looking at Johns Hopkins, who was a very devout Quaker but he did have enslaved people in his household. Uh, and um, you know, people have called him an abolitionist. Uh, he was a supporter of, certainly of the Union Army, of the Union cause, was a, uh, a confidant of Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And if you've been to Baltimore, Baltimore is very much a, uh, has a Southern town feel to it, even though they think of themselves more of a seaboard community as opposed to, um, you know, the South where I live now in South Carolina. But uh, Johns Hopkins uh, came from a, a very large Quaker family. Um, their, their parent, his parents came back from church one Sunday and said, we are going to free all of our enslaved persons and uh, put him to work in the fields. They had a large, in Arendelle County, um, kind of um, farming operation, grew cotton and other crops. and. Uh, he never went to college and never had the opportunity to really get any formal education and was sent off to Baltimore when he was 17, 18 years old, working for his uncle and uh, decided to break away and founded Hopkins and Brothers uh, Dried Goods. And this is an interesting kind of wrinkle um, because he found um, the liquor trade was particularly profitable and kind of the, the, the cross-state uh, transport of uh, of of spirits, uh, which got him into trouble with his Quaker uh, meeting, as they call it. Uh, that's their name for a congregation. And he was uh, he was booted out of his meeting because of uh, of his trade in in liquor. But he never married, um, had no heirs to speak of. And um, it's interesting, George Peabody. You'll appreciate him given the you know, fact that you live over in the UK. Uh, arguably one of the greatest philanthropists uh, in the history of the world, but w- really was the first modern philanthropist of the 19th century. Did a tremendous amount uh, in England where he lived and also in Baltimore. The Peabody Institute is a spectacular facility and and uh, is connected to Johns Hopkins. But George Peabody is the one that convinced Johns Hopkins in the 1860s uh, that he should leave his, his wealth to things that really mattered. And in his mind, he said, a university and a hospital. So Johns Hopkins put together uh, through his uh, friend, John Work Garrett, who was this, in effect, the president of the Baltimore and Ohio railroad where Hopkins made all of his money was in the stock of, uh, of the B and O. Uh, he also had a tremendous amount of land holdings in and around Baltimore. And uh, John Work Garrett helped draft up a will And the will divided evenly uh, his estate of, uh, think about $7 million in the 1860s. So three and a half million was gonna go to a university and three and a half million to a hospital. And he died in 1873, uh, either 1872 or 73 uh, on Christmas Eve. And um, before he died, it was all spelled out exactly who the trustees were gonna be uh, for both the hospital and the university. And um, Daniel Coit Gilman comments and i quoted in the book that never in the history of American higher education or maybe the world had that much money been given with kind of unencumbered, um, there was was no restrictions on how they were to spend it or to found the university. And I have worked in public higher higher education for 30 years. And anytime you get an unrestricted gift, you kind of leap in the air because those just do not happen. And so for him, to trust his friends, and they were all friends. They were some family members that he appointed to the board uh, as trustees. They took it and ran with it. And um, it is a remarkable story of their going out and hiring a president who then went out and recruited individually the six founding faculty members at Hopkins. And, And I don't mean to wax too more romantic about it, but it's an incredibly inspiring story when you think about how this set in motion American higher education philanthropy in the 1860s and 70s that led to what? Uh, You had Cornell University founded, you had uh, Clark University, you had the Rockefellers found the University of Chicago, you had the Stanfords go all the way out to Palo Alto where they were from and found Stanford University. So this began in many ways a um, kind of this this ripple effect um, of the first significant gift to higher education in America uh, that had never been seen before. And that's where that's Johns Hopkins. So um, the, the, the amazing thing, too, was the university got started. It was based on um, uh, Baltimore and Ohio Railroad stock, which kind of ebbed and flowed. And then he did the three and a half million dollars for the hospital, which was opened in 1889. And that was followed with the medical school. So I hope we have a chance to get into a little bit about the first teaching hospital in America and the fact that the, the medical school uh, was the most rigorous uh, if people want to get a medical degree in the 19th century they did not stay in america they went to germany they went to england they went to france particularly germany uh, but uh, the, the hopkins model created a teaching hospital and if you go on campuses today whether it's here in our home state of of south carolina if i go to usc you see these enormous teaching hospitals and medical facilities university of michigan for example i've never seen a bigger one in this country but think of all of the Medical advances that have come out of research one universities, based on a model that was established in 1876 at Johns Hopkins. So that was a kind of a rambling preamble, but that's who Johns Hopkins was—a uh, remarkable, <clears throat> excuse me, philanthropist in his own right. And uh, the university, of course, bears his name.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great story, and there's a lot more in the book as well. I think you're you're you starting with the hard histories is great because there are moral dilemmas throughout his life that he has as well. But of course, the book isn't about Hopkins. It's about Daniel Coy Gilman. And and this isn't his first rodeo, Johns Hopkins. So I was wondering, and I want to get to the other parts too, the medical school. I want to get to the English connection. But maybe if you could give us a, a, a sort of a short history of his life before he takes the helm of the university. What What's his background?
2: Well, he was born uh, in Norwich, Connecticut. He, that's where he's buried, right next to his first wife. Uh, Mary, who died very, very young in life, um, but was raised in New York City, and uh, quite, in in all full transparency, kind of came from a life of privilege. His, his father was a very well-to-do merchant. Um, he had not uh, gone to university or graduated, and so he sent his son off to Yale, where a lot of kids from Connecticut um, uh, were attending. And it's interesting, Michael, uh, in the class of 18 44 uh, and 1845, I wanna make sure I get my dates right. Um, you had three friends. Uh, the first, of course, was, was Gilman. The other one was Andrew Dixon White, who became the first president of Cornell. And the other one was William Preston Johnston. And if you know your Civil War history, his father was Albert Sidney Johnston, who was the uh, Confederate general who was shot in the back of the leg, right above his knee, um, and bled out in his boot at the Battle of Shiloh, and uh, Jefferson Davis said that uh, he believed that the Confederate cause was was uh, going to come to an end because they lost, he lost his best general. Of course, that didn't happen. We know about the Civil War, but a- after the Civil War, William Preston Johnston taught first at Washington College, which became Washington Lee, and then became the uh, superintendent at LSU, and then the first president of Tulane. So think about this: in in space of two years, Yale produces the first the first three founding presidents of Cornell, Johns Hopkins, and Tulane University. Um, and after his graduation from Yale, uh, like a lot of his uh, his contemporaries, he went off to Europe, uh, worked for the Russian uh, excuse me the American consulate in in Russia, but really spent quite a bit of time. Uh, on his own with his friend Andrew Dixon White investigating uh, the educational systems throughout Europe. He was particularly fascinated with England, uh, England and Germany. Those were the two that really held uh, quite a bit of interest for him. So with the backing of his father and with doing a little bit of work here and there, uh, he was pro- a prolific letter writer. That was one thing I loved was getting into hit the correspondence back and forth with his parents, with his friends, with his siblings, he had very close relations with his sisters and and confided in them that here's a young man uh, at age what, 24, 25, who had a, had a very kind of marked um, sense of what was in store for him and not knowing exactly what that path or where that path would take him, uh, was was always focused on preparing and and learning as much as he could. And he kept these, he's a prodigious writer and he would keep these notebooks of observations and and connections. And one thing I really loved, anytime you do a project like this, oftentimes you get transported back to that time just by reading the correspondence. And he would spend days and he would keep a catalog of the letters he wrote back and forth. And you know, one year he wrote, I think, 320 letters in one year. And I mean, beautiful penmanship and very elaborate uh, salutations and they use letterpress books to make copies um, of, of many of those correspondence. And to the credit of Johns Hopkins Library, the Eisenhower Library there on campus in Baltimore, they've digitized a lot of this. So to the listeners, if you, if you want a, a fun little uh, kind of escape and, and maybe go down the rabbit hole, hop on their website and read some of these letters, because you name prominent people, educators, business leaders, politicians in the latter part of the 19th century, chances are Gilman had some type of correspondence with them.
1: So I did actually, I did uh, not, well, I didn't take you up on that offer to go and read the digital, but I was really fascinated by, you had mentioned that when he was in Manchester, he spoke with uh, Richard Cobden. He was there uh, giving a talk. And I, I said to my friend, Mark Palin, who uh, he's a, he's written about Cobden extensively, that he had, he had no idea that Gilman had this connection with Cobden or that, you know, Gilman had this, you know, Uh, epiphany i suppose during the european tour
2: yeah and the cobden episode is really interesting because they get to london he's invited to this meeting uh in manchester i believe it was and it's in effect a labor meeting and dixon white andrew dixon white and gilman are invited and andrew dixon White was a very capable uh i mean read his life uh, story he had the this extensive library that he started collecting when he went over off to europe but He was not nearly the public speaker that Gilman was. And so he said, uh, you know, Gilman was given uh, the assignment of speaking to this meeting and he gets up there and, and, and uh, Dixon White records that he was so impressed by his young friend who literally gets up there and in front of a crowd of, you know, close to a thousand people uh, elucidates on the topic that he's given Um, those kinds of relations. I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, these were not just superficial, you know, one-offs he, he got to know these people. He kept uh, these these relationships going throughout his life, and you read that in the correspondence. And he did it everywhere he went, uh, whether it was in Germany or in England or I uh, You know, he 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 did a tour through the Middle East uh, during one of his sabbatical years at Johns Hopkins, utilizing all the contacts he had. He had of people taking him through Jerusalem or through Cairo or through Istanbul. It was it's really fascinating. So I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, Tell me, so before he comes to Johns Hopkins, what's his big break in higher education?
2: So he goes back uh, to Yale. And uh, if you look at American higher education um, in the 19th century, they were still very much on this model of uh, the, the the schools, the particularly Ivy League schools, that were focused on three areas, teaching, law, and uh, divinity, in effect. So, if you had hard sciences, anything in the area of, of, of engineering or chemistry or physics, they were housed in a wholly different, uh, oftentimes a different campus. So, um, at Yale, it was called the Sheffield Scientific School. At Harvard, for example, it was the Lawrence Scientific School. So, he gets a job uh, first as the librarian, uh, assistant librarian at Yale, not the Sterling Library that you see today, but uh, much more humble circumstances or, or a, a edifice at that time, but really becomes uh, committed to a an educational experience in America that melded the liberal arts, the traditional liberal arts with the scientific disciplines, what you may call the applied sciences, which they were called at the time, and um, really became committed to, to ensuring that those were not mutually exclusive, but that universities were built on a model where you can study both. And uh, one did not uh, necessitate ignoring the other, so um, he does that for a while. Uh, his his reputation grows uh, quite considerably. Here's another relationship; becomes very good friends with uh, Justin Morrill, the senator from Vermont, and is the really the primary reason that Yale is designated as the land grant institution of the state of Connecticut. So a lot of people think about well, in South Carolina, for example, Clemson's the land grant. In Texas, it's Texas A&M. In Louisiana, it's, it's LSU. Uh, you had three private schools on the East Coast that convinced the federal government that they should be considered a land-grant and got that, in effect, land-grant script that created uh, these enormous endowments to, to fund education at MIT at Cornell and at uh, Yale. Yale eventually had to cede to uh, a legislative demand in the the 1890s, the University of Connecticut became a land-grant institution. So as as Gilman is doing all these things, his reputation is now starting to grow and he gets recruited uh, to be the president at at the University of California, the first president. Um, His wife had recently passed away, Uh, his daughter, his oldest daughter was not well uh, physically, so he turned down the offer uh, he really, in full disclosure, he wanted to be the president of Yale, his alma mater, and they went with another candidate. Uh, he kind of went into a, a funk in his life a little bit. Uh, I mean, think about your 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 own life, or think about my life. Your your spouse dies. You're all by yourself. You have two daughters to raise. You don't get your dream job. So California comes calling again, and he thinks this is maybe my chance to to break out and to. His daughter um, had a respiratory challenge, and so the doctor said, maybe the climate out in California would be better. So, you know, parenthetically, I should add, it was easier to get from uh, New Haven, Connecticut to London, England, than it was to get from New Haven to Berkeley, California. And he goes, he takes a train, Michael, all the way out to Berkeley, uh, to Oakland, to, uh, to do kind of his own investigation of, of the opportunity. They offer him the job, and he becomes the third president of the University of California in 1872. And, you know, he has a a fairly successful tenure, but he runs headlong into what they call the Grange out there in California, the people that were committed to two things. They wanted applied science taught, uh, you know, they call it the the mechanical arts and agriculture. And so here was this kind of uh, well-born, well-bred Uh, Brahmin from Connecticut coming out there and telling them that they needed to focus on the liberal arts and uh, make sure the literature and English and music and philosophy were taught. And you had the kind of native population there that was saying, Hey, we got this, this uh, moral land grant act uh, money, and we're going to focus on, on building our economy and our infrastructure. And that's going to be the sciences. That's going to be agriculture. That's going to be mechanical arts. That's going to be engineering. And um, he was not used to dealing with the legislature either. So uh, it, was a, it was a tough kind of road to hoe for him. And when his best friend, Andrew Dixon White, sent him a letter and said, hey, I'm hearing overtures that there's been a, this enormous gift uh, set aside by a gentleman by the name of Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, that's when he started learn, uh, kind of listening. So in 1875, he makes a trip back out. Uh, <laughs> from Oakland back out to New Haven and spends an entire day with the board, and they offer him on the spot uh, the job at, at Hopkins. And last point I'll say um, the trustee at Hopkins asked the presidents of Michigan, James Angel, uh, the president of Harvard, Charles Elliott, and the president of Cornell, Andrew Dixon White, whom should they select to be the first president of Johns Hopkins and to a person? They said, Your guy is out there in California. His name is Daniel Coyt Gilman. So, in effect, by acclamation, they offered him the job and he accepted it on the spot. And he started in February of 1876.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: And what does, what does Johns Hopkins look like in 1876? I mean, Reconstruction is, well, it's the very tail end of Reconstruction. Um, what does it look like? I mean, what, what does admissions look like? What are what are the plans for admissions look like? What is the plan for you know the the schools to 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 be? Is it liberal arts or or what does it look like?
2: That's a good question, and it's uh it, it's hard to kind of transport yourself back to Baltimore post Civil War. Um, uh, you know, it, it was still very much a uh, a Southern state. It was kind of between um betwixt and between in many ways, and I mentioned John Work Garrett, uh, the president of the Baltimore Ohio, who started off as kind of a supporter of the Confederacy. And then uh, when they did damage to his trains, uh, when I say they, I, I'm trying to remember who the Confederate general was. I think it was uh, Longstreet who uh, damaged a lot of his rails in at Harper's Ferry. He said, no, that's it. OK, I'm now a union man. And uh, he became very close with uh, Ulysses S. Grant and President Lincoln. So. Um, in some ways, Baltimore uh, was still trying to figure out where it fit in in Reconstruction, and so for a gift to happen uh, from Johns Hopkins in 1869 is when he put his will together, and then it come to fruition, 1872, 1873. There was they were it was it was very modest. I mean, if you look at the original kind of buildings, the the joke, and I mentioned it in my book, uh, people would take the trolley by. Uh, the buildings that were the chemistry and, and some of the science buildings. And they were very, very modest. And some one person quipped that, uh, what is that, a piano factory? And that was uh, the original campus in downtown Baltimore. And one person said, they've got you know millions of dollars for research and not one penny for show. And uh, Gilman stated unequivocally, he said, we are about men and not buildings. And you may say, well, that's very sexist, but the faculty he hired were all men, of course. Um, We can maybe get into a discussion about the admission of women, which didn't happen uh, on the undergraduate level until 18, uh, excuse me, in the 1970s. So they did admit a few women very selectively in the 1870s, and and there were conditions to that, uh, but just for graduate school. So if you think about the, the faculty he recruited, even the graduate students he recruited, many of whom had come from these bucolic settings along the East Coast. With quads and beautiful chapels and and leafy greens and all that sort of thing, uh, and here they are in downtown gritty Baltimore. And it wasn't until the nineteen teens, nineteen twenties, that they moved to what's the present the present site of the Homewood campus. So it was very very kind of uh, Spartan, and uh, whatever resources they had, Gilman put into people, and he put into fitting out their their lab equipment and fitting out their labs, and that was his that was his number one priority.
1: Well, I think it's interesting that you bring up admissions, um, not just for women, but I also want to talk about minorities as well, because in the book, you point out that California had allowed female undergrads when Gilman was president of Berkeley, uh, but Hopkins didn't. Um, but they do admit African-Americans, right? I mean, how did the admissions policies work specifically around those two, uh, those two uh, groups?
2: So in my book, I take an entire chapter on the California tenure. And as he's leaving, he presents to the Board of Regents basically a 50 or 60 page synopsis of his tenure. And one of the things he's most proud of is that women were admitted on the same level with the same requirements as men. And he states uh, very kind of unashamedly that the female students were better students than the males. And uh, that so California was, was in many ways far uh, advanced of some of the East Coast schools. Now Cornell admitted Uh, female students early on. Uh, I came from Kentucky where you had down the road from our college at at East Kentucky Berea College, which in the 1850s was co-educational and and had African-American students, which was unheard of in the South, uh, as you can appreciate. So California in many ways was uh, I think a harbinger of what he wanted to do uh, at Hopkins. But in point of fact, he ran into real stiff opposition from board members uh, and the irony, Michael, is that there were four board members that had four daughters, all of whom who wanted to go to Hopkins, and none of them were admitted. So uh, they went uh, other places. Um, uh, it wasn't until, and you you mentioned admission of an African-American student, Kelly Miller. He was was the first uh, and really the only one. And um, one thing they did at Hopkins that had never been tried before was they set aside money for stipends, in effect, scholarships or fellowships. And nobody had been willing to pay graduate students to to study postgraduate or pursue postgraduate degrees. And so one commentator said, Hopkins basically went out and bought the best people they could, and that's true. I mean, if you wanna distill down why they were successful, these $500 stipends uh, covered everything for these students that wanted to come and study. Um, and Kelly Miller, who had come from Washington D.C., um, maintained that his funding ran out. You know, if Hopkins really wanted to keep him, they they could have. You know, it, it's maybe easy for us to to armchair quarterback all these years later, but um, I point out in the book that they could really have really had a chance in so many ways. They let out, and in so many ways, they were innovation. They were innovators that nobody had seen before in higher education, and for a southern state like Maryland to fully admit. African-American students, uh, other minority students and and females in the 1870s and 80s would have really been something. Um, You know, what might've been, I I can't opine on that anymore other than to say the historical record is what it is. Uh, Howard Miller went on to, excuse me, Howard Kelly went on to uh, do extraordinary things at at, uh, Howard University in Washington, D.C. They called him the Bard of the Potomac. He was a prolific writer. And he wasn't bitter, uh, but I often ask, what could have happened if, if Hopkins had 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 said, "Hey, we will be different." And uh, the board just kind of dug in, and Gilman tried, uh, but you know he 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 was a prolific um, journal keeper on many subjects, but on this one, he remains somewhat eerily silent uh, on the admission of African American students at Hopkins. The last thing I'll I'll point out is. He was the part uh, part of the Slater Fund, the John Fox Slater Fund, and chairman of the board on that board for nearly twenty five years, and uh, that was a, a very successful mercantilist from Norwich, his hometown, who tried to fill that gap of uh, post Reconstruction when uh, Reconstruction in so many ways failed uh, failed the freedmen, uh, the the, the freed emancipated slaves. Uh, and didn't provide the educational opportunities that they had promised. And so what, you, what, you, what you do you have? You had re, rich benefactors that came from the East uh, and try to establish uh, whether it's the Peabody Fund or uh, the Rockefellers, or in this case, John Fox Slater, and, and funded quite a bit of uh, of HBCUs that now run through uh, the South where we now live.
1: Well, you point out that he was appointing people to the faculty that were really the the best in their class too. And I, I was wondering if you could take us through some of the people that he appointed and some of the programs that they then, uh, they developed at Johns Hopkins.
2: Yeah, so he went out and I, I don't think there's another example of a university president spending the time of not only resources, but, uh, but commitment uh, to, to recruit his original six faculty. So classicists, chemists, um, the gentleman he requ- he recruited from Oxford, uh, had, had came from kind of that, uh, that, that traditional English background. Um, you know, the, the, uh, he got uh, arguably the finest, uh, mathematician of his generation. And then he, he hired his first doctor, William Welch, who then was responsible for going out and recruiting, uh, the original, what they call the, the, the big four, the four doctors. So William Welch was a pathologist. He recruited Howard Kelly, who was a gynecologist, um, who al- he also recruited Sir William Osler, who uh, left Hopkins and, and be- was knighted and became a uh, professor of, of, of medicine uh, at his uh, back in his home country at Oxford. And then arguably the finest surgeon of his generation, William Halstead, William Stuart Halstead. Um, and there's been I don't know if you watched the Nick uh, on HBO or Showtime several years ago, but based on him a uh, remarkable surgeon who tragically was a uh, uh, a morphine and cocaine addict for about 30 years of his life. Um, had tried cocaine as an, a local anesthetic uh, in a surgery in the 18, I want to say the 1870s, 1880s. And um, some of his residents tried it as well, and they all became addicted. So he, they tried to wean him off of cocaine with morphine, and uh, you think about what he was able to do, and I don't have time to go into some of the things that he did, but I mean, you know, one good example, um, he married a woman named Carolyn Hampton, who ironically was the granddaughter of Wade Hampton here in South Carolina, the Confederate General, who was a nurse in New York City, and he was a stickler for cleanliness in his surgical space in his lab. And so um, I don't know what kind of acid it was, but he required everybody to scrub in uh, and use this acid to clean their hands, and it was destroying her, her skin, Carolyn Hampton's skin. And she said, look, unless you come up with a different way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. So after that particular that, uh, procedure, he goes down the street in New York and meets with his friends at Goodyear Tire and Rubber and has them develop the very first set of plastic gloves uh, that had a, you know, a thing they could kind of cord off at the wrist, tie off at the wrist, and he takes them back to uh, Carolyn and says, well, this works. And she puts them on. And that that was the start of, of surgical rubber gloves that uh, now are, are just de rigueur. I mean, you see them everywhere. But, you know, things like that. I mean, the fact that he, he did emergency gallbladder surgery on his mother on the kitchen table. Uh, he saved his, his sister's life, who was dying in childbirth, by giving her a blood transfusion from his own arm. Uh, I mean, he did things that were just unheard of. And it was that kind of talent that Gilman recruited. Um, uh, the classicists, the chemists, um, the, the historians, um, uh, they all came to Hopkins because there was this the allure of study was the primary focus. There wasn't politics to speak of. This was a brand new university with an absolutely clean slate. And the idea was you were gonna, you were going to be expected to do your best work and you were going to be supported. And, um, if you look at the production of PhDs, for example, in that first 25 years of existence, uh, the number I have it in, uh, in the book, you know, it's north of 500 and, uh, Harvard produced, I think, uh, 150 during that same period. And the president of Harvard said it wasn't until Hopkins kind of spurred us forward and showed us what was ca- possible that we finally got our act together with our graduate school. And, um, so I, you know, I'm getting far afield there, but, uh, the, the, the fact that Hopkins was able to produce that many degrees does not suggest at all that they were easy. Um, they, these were rigorous programs. And I go through the the kind of the, the things that were codified in terms of the American PhD, uh, the use of external examiners, for example, uh, publication of theses, um, not two years, but three years between the time where you finished your undergraduate degree and when you got a doctorate. Um, the, the, uh, the fact that you had to have a principal or a primary area of focus, but also a secondary. So all these things that we kind of take for granted that were codified by, interestingly enough, the Association of American Universities founded by Gilman and his colleagues in 1901 uh, that was adopted as kind of the PhD requirements in American higher education today, that in many ways has been replicated by other systems in other countries around the world.
1: I mean, I could uh, I could delve into a few more. I was thinking when I was reading the book about the Flexner report coming out of Johns Hopkins. I that transforms medicine for generations in the United States, uh, and and there's others as well. But presidents, when they're conceiving a vision for an institution and and executing that vision, uh, they they often meet with opposition from those that either resist the change or have a competing point of view about where the you know the institution is going to go. How did Daniel Coy Gilman deal with opposition in Johns Hopkins?
2: So that's a really good question. And uh, it's not that he didn't have any uh, because um, the challenge was uh, that it was, it was established ostensibly as a graduate school and the primary kind of tranche of students that came in were all graduate students. So you can go through the roster and they, they published what were these what were called university circulars. In effect, it was an annual report, but they did it more regularly than annually. It was more like quarterly and sometimes monthly. And they would have a list of all the the people they recruited as students. And they were expensive. I mean, as I mentioned, 500 is is, was not an inconsequential amount of money back in 1876. So at a certain point, as I mentioned, the ebb and flow of of the B&O railroad stock um, impacted their annual budget they realized they had to go out and get undergraduate students to help pay the bills. So it's not dissimilar to what we face in, in higher education today. I mean, you have to kind of take from Paul to pay Peter, as they say. Um, and so uh, he, he ran into some opposition as to the, the focus on graduate students. Maybe they should focus more on, on the undergraduate experience. Um, he was very actively involved in community service and board service throughout his life. Uh, he loved to travel. Um, you, you, as I mentioned, he went across the Atlantic Ocean more often than people ever dreamed of in 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 19th century America. And there were some that kind of criticized that he wasn't around very much. He kind of left to other people uh, the running of the university when he was out, um, kind of gallivanting around the continent and uh, advising people. He was looked to by many people as a as a not only experienced. But incredibly insightful. So, um, I don't know if we'll have a chance to get into the, the Andrew Carnegie himself recruiting him to run his Washington Institute when he retires from Hopkins. So that's that's an example of the fact that his reputation uh, really crossed over into business, into philanthropy, into a lot of other areas. So you know, if there was opposition, I think it was that uh, you know, twenty five years at a place is a long time. But a lot of time away from campus doing things that he found were of interest to him uh, and where he felt like he could help. Good example, um, just to, in the southern part of Virginia, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia is the oldest institution, public institution in our country, College of William and Mary. And after the Civil War, it's absolutely devastated. Uh, they've closed the doors, uh, the president there, invites Gilman for a, 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 a tour of campus. So Gilman comes there with a second wife and his daughter and he's absolutely bowled over by how bad it is. Um, the uh, the building there named for the the British architect, his name is, Kate Jordan, oh, uh, Wren, Christopher Wren, the oldest academic building in America on that campus. Um, and it's in terrible disrepair. And Gilman is so moved by how bad it is. He comes back to Hopkins and enlists his faculty to help support, not only with their own finances, but to lobby the Virginia General Assembly to support this flagling institution that was literally making payroll because the the president who had no students, uh, or had very few students rather, was paying his faculty with his own, out of his own pocket. And uh, the State uh, Assembly, the General Assembly in Virginia finally appropriates some money, and look at William & Mary today. I mean, uh, had Gilman not uh, kind of stepped in and helped. So that's an example of how he was enlisted to help here and help there. And if there was opposition, it was a, hey, you know, pay more attention to your the school that really pay the, the pays your bills. He, You know, he was also very involved, of course. He was the first director of the hospital in 1888, 1889, and then the establishment of the medical school. So
1: I think you're right, though, about presidents having a reach beyond their institution too often they're looked at as, you know, just sort of the steward of their institution. But and and Daniel Gilman is a really good example, too. I mean, you mentioned the Carnegie Institute, and I want to delve into that a little bit here. But but also maybe when we talk about the Carnegie Institute, can we also talk about how Gilman shaped higher education policy throughout the country as well? And about how, you know, what he did at Hopkins, it also reflected in in other institutions, what they decided to do with research funding and with developing programs.
2: So the, there's a bit in the book where I talk about George Washington and some of the original founders wanting to found a national university. That was one of the uh, primary areas of focus for Washington. You know, obviously he had never gone to college. Very few of the founding fathers had gone. You know, John Adams is really the exception. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, Adams at Harvard, Jefferson at, at University of Virginia, first at William & Mary, then Virginia. Um, and so Andrew Carnegie, who was uh, y- you look at philanthropy in America, there's never been anyone quite like him th- that he gave away so much of his wealth. And as you know, his primary focus first was libraries. you know 1400 libraries in North America. Uh, we used to live out in Utah and in our very small community in central Utah and in, in Sanpete County within a, about a 15 mile radius and it was linear. it was just it was it was one, two, three, Carnegie libraries that were everything to those farming communities. I mean, they were the window to the world, um, and that was that's one example. And you can go throughout our country and see, you know, remnants of Carnegie libraries. In many ways, they've been repurposed. Um, go to Washington D.C. The new Apple Store in, in D.C. is an old Carnegie library, and uh, they spared no expense to state, you know, save some of the the original architecture, but. You know, think about that. I mean, the 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 fact that the the this incredibly wealthy man, the world's wealthy wealthiest man at the time, uh, did that, and then he he was convinced by Andrew Dixon White, interestingly enough, uh, to found this institution. That um, short of a national university, and there were some people that were pushing to put a national university in Washington D.C. that would be focused on on research. Gilman's argument was, you already have these other universities established. You know, why reinvent the wheel? Why not support the research that's going on at these other places? And so when Carnegie um, recruits him to be the, the first president of the Washington, excuse me, the Carnegie Institution of Washington was the original name. The, the primary um, focus was to fund the research pockets that were going on at, at other places. And um, you know, to your point, um, there, there was a colleague of his by the name of John Shaw Billings, um, who is another one of those unsung heroes? I believe in the story from Indiana uh, was a field surgeon for the Union Army during the Civil War. You know, Cold Harbor, Gettysburg, Shiloh, uh, Antietam. There's a picture of him before the war and when he was uh, um, when he was released for medical reasons, and his face is drawn. And you just Im- imagine the experiences he had. But he was an amazing uh organizer and he was the one that put together the medical library for the u.s surgeon general um, the first time in the 1860s and 70s and he was recruited by gilman to help with the establishment of first the hospital and then the medical school and then he became uh very very involved in the carnegie institution and before he became involved with the carnegie he's the one that built the new york city public library so he he put to the you know the Astor collection, and I can't remember the other names of it, but built right there on uh, right there in Central Manhattan, what is considered probably the, the finest public library maybe in the world, and his portraits upstairs in the main reading room, and that that's another example of the talent that Gilman was able to recruit to various projects. First at Hopkins, then to the hospital and the medical school, and then to the Carnegie Institution. And uh, he was one of the really the, the, the ones that took over for Gilman after Gilman realized that uh, um, his, his vision uh, maybe wasn't didn't coalesce with some of the other board members. And you look at the original board, I don't have the, the names in front of me, but it was the who's who of, of government and, and philanthropy and education in America in the early part of the, of the 19th century, uh, excuse me, the 20th century. And uh, it was great fun going back and reading the minutes of those meetings because, you know, here's Carnegie with literally unlimited wealth saying, I want to do this. And the Carnegie Institute today is still one of the the primary funders of uh, some really significant research across the world uh, and really uh, fundamental research that's impacting our lives on a daily basis.
1: So President Benson, with that hat on, the president's hat on, what has the book taught you about university management?
2: That's, uh, well, not a day goes by that I don't think about the investment that Gilman made personally uh, in recruiting the very best faculty he could. And he said time and again that the core of any great university, it's it's not the facilities. Yes, it's good students, but you have to have an exceptional faculty. And the thing I loved about Gilman is that he went out and recruited the best he could find. And he gave them the tools to do their job and then he got the hell out of the way. And uh, that's, I mean, to me, that's kind of the, the core of the, the academic enterprise. It's academic freedom. It's the ability to hire really outstanding people who are expert in their their respective fields and let them do their thing. And uh,
1: I just say that I can
2: currently hear all of the academic listeners to this podcast, cheering,
1: clapping, you know, shouting, yes, right on.
2: And what was so amazing, Michael, is that the, you know, Gilman, by the way, I didn't mention how the, the genesis of this book and the genesis is I went to Hopkins in 2017 and asked for a, a one you know single volume biography of Gilman. And it just so happened that there was an archivist there. And I tell the story in the preface, I believe, who said well, you know, when no one's written one in fifty years, you may as well take a shot at it. And I thought I just had the maybe the the, the temerity to think I could do it, um, or the spa. And um, I'm so glad I did because the story had to be told of what one visionary who was incredibly articulate and had this incredible power of rhetoric, but then turned rhetoric into results. You know, it's one thing to get up and give a great speech, and his 1876. February 23rd, inaugural speech, Michael, is the gold standard of presidential inaugurals. And I encourage everybody who's listening to this to look it up, because when Hopkins turned 125 years, uh, it was called Knowledge for the World. They did this big coffee table book, and they took 12 principles or tenets or kind of aspirational goals that Gilman touched on. And in that book, they showed, lo and behold, they had accomplished every single one of them. So it's one thing to get up and give a great talk but it's quite another to turn that into results. And he was not about lip service. He was about, look, I'm going to go find the best. I'm going to let them do their thing. And what it produced was amazing results. So, um, you know, there was a, and I'll end with this. I think in 1925, a sociologist did a study of the thousand top scientists in America. And if memory serves, it was 240, uh, 241 that were from Johns Hopkins. So, they came out of this kind of nascent university from 1876 that had, you know, Harvard had a 240 year head start on them, and produced these amazing scientists that then out went out and populated universities across the world. Uh, in effect, and uh, I think they took a bit of, I hope they took a bit of Gilman with them that the academic enterprise is about uh, supporting faculty in their endeavors, and when you do that, wonderful things can happen, and that's exactly what happened to Hopkins.
1: Well, uh, President Benson, that is a great way to wrap things up. And I just want to say as well, a couple of things. One, having a historian as a president, I think, is a great thing for your for your university. Not just a historian, I would say that as a fellow historian, but someone who's actively researching, writing, and publishing. Um, and, and naturally, what, one that that uh, dovetails nicely with the work that you do anyway. But also, for anyone listening, uh, president's enthusiasm for this subject is kind of contagious. It comes out in the writing, it comes out in this conversation, and I'm very grateful that you could join us for the show.
2: Well, Michael, you've been so incredibly generous, and if I could just give you a a 60-second synopsis of the campus where we are today at Coastal Carolina, because we started as Conway College in 1954, and it's an example of the townspeople in Horry County, which is the biggest county in South Carolina, getting together and saying, you know, we're business, we're farmers, we're merchants, uh, we don't know how to run a, a college, but we know we are, our community wants one. And so in 1954, 15 people got together and put in their own money and founded what has now become, we were a branch of the University of South Carolina until 1993. And so we're coming up on our 75th anniversary. And that's an example of a, of a local population recognizing the absolute Uh, value, the collateral impact that a a, college, a university, a higher education entity has on the quality of life in the community. It's not just the payroll and the jobs we provide. It's the cultural events. It's the academic offerings. It's the sporting events. It's uh, it's bringing together a community. So in many ways, I'm living in a microcosm, uh, a much smaller scale of what happened in Baltimore in 1876. And if you went across this country, you know, your job at Dickinson, I don't know, it's it's history. But my guess is you'd find more often than not histories about local communities saying we want a college, we want a university, we want a a trade tech, we want a community college in our community because we realize how incredibly valuable they are.
1: Well, I I can pretty much guarantee that the president of my institution who listens to this podcast is also nodding his head in agreement you know, the importance of of universities to communities and particularly ones like Dickinson State, where, uh, you know, it's a it's a rural place. And so yep. the importance of the university is even greater there. Mike, thank you so much for joining the show.
2: Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
1: Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next
0: episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.